All right, Raquel, you want to kick us off? All right. Welcome, Facebook. Welcome, participants. You are not confused. You are at the Bluffton Book Festival, the sixth annual Bluffton Book Festival. This is the partnership that we have with the Pat Conroy Center. And um, every year we kick off our Thursday nights with a Pat Conroy inspired event. And so I am just here to say thank you to Jonathan and all of his crew there. And I don't know them all, but thank you all. And thank you for Kaylin for being here with us this evening. And now I'm going to sit back and relax and enjoy this part of the show. Thank you, Jonathan, and welcome everyone. Thank you so much, Raquel. I really appreciate you being with us tonight and uh, doing a very nice welcome for the Bluffton Book Festival, which is in its sixth year. Uh, the Conroy Literary Festival and the Bluffton Festival have grown up together and I treasure this partnership. And it's a thrill to get to do this every year. Last year, uh, as part of the Bluffton Book Festival, Holland and I got to interview a YA author, uh, father and son team, actually. So it's very nice to get to do a sort of parallel event this year as well. Uh, and with an author that we've gotten to work with before at the Conroy Center, too. Kaylin Barron was with us in March as part of our annual March 4th event and was interviewed uh, that, that day by Holland with the assistance of several of her Buford High School classmates as well. Uh, and that will be the case tonight. So that's Holland, by the way, who I keep referencing right there, Holland Perryman, the first, the original Conroy Center student intern, also the first intern of the Friends of South Carolina Libraries. Uh, but our cast has expanded now as well. So we're delighted to also have co-hosting tonight, Millie Bennett on the end there, junior at Buford High School, and Alicia Aurora. Uh, Millie has done two author interviews. This is the second of those. And Alicia is doing her absolute first author interview tonight. So very excited to see them get to join our conversation with Kaylin. Kaylin is the award-winning author of the YA novel, Cinderella is Dead. Hold that up. Thank you. Multi-award winner. She's a She's helping already, look at that, uh, which we interviewed uh, Kaylin about in March. It is a fantastic novel, and we were so excited to learn at that point that there were more on the way, and that has led us to tonight's conversation about this poison heart, which Holland is holding up, released just a couple of months ago. Uh, and there are more on the way, including a sequel to this poison heart, which we'll get to talk, to, uh, talk to, about tonight as well. Kaylin is originally from Anchorage, Alaska. She has a background in uh, music, which we'll get to talk about a little bit tonight, and a passion for theater and scary movies and some amazing kids, uh, all of which may come up in conversation tonight. She is joining us uh, from Ithaca, New York, where she has recently moved. And we're so grateful to you, Kaylin, for, for making the time for all of this tonight. So with all of that said, I'm going to turn it over to these very inquisitive young readers who have about four hours of questions <laughs> that we're going to try and cram into our time tonight. So who is starting? Me! Excellent. So thank you everyone for coming and thank you so much, Kaylin, for being with us today. We are lucky enough today to be in the presence of an author who absolutely embodies what Pat Conroy stood for with representation and storytelling that uplifts people. Um, so we are so grateful to be talking to you today. It's absolutely perfect. Um, in my oh first my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all are making me blush. Like, thank you so much. That was an amazing introduction. <laughs> um, my first question that I'd like to start with to give a little bit of context is who do you write for? When you picture your audience, who are you writing for? Yeah, so I, um, I'm i writing for, for two different kind of sets of people. I'm writing, I think, mostly for um, young readers who are really, um, who may have found that they couldn't find a, a mirror for themselves in young adult fiction, especially um, in young adult fantasy. Um, I, I'm always writing towards towards that audience but I'm also writing for uh for myself for the younger version of myself who did not get to see um many um uh, if any queer black girls in young adult literature and so um that's that's kind of who is in my mind um all the time when I'm writing absolutely and what effect do you hope that your books and stories with their diverse characters and sapphic romances, what effect do you hope that they have on that audience? 
Man, I, you know, I, I really just, I want my readers to, to feel seen. Um, I really want them to know that uh, there is a place for them um, in the pages of, of YA um, across all different genres. Um, and I love fantasy. Um, and so it's so fun for me to be able to kind of put these characters in these fantasy settings. And so um, I hope that, that readers take away that um, they belong in these spaces and that uh, we can bring our own kind of perspectives um, to these spaces and, and they will be um, enriched because of it. Um, and so I just, I just want my readers to, to feel seen and to, um, to know that there's a place for them. Absolutely. Hi, so I have a little bit of a long question, but I did write it, so I'm gonna have to be the one to ask it. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, your first two books, Cinderella is Dead and This Poison Heart, were released during the pandemic. We know this created a lot of struggle for bookstores and authors who relied on book events and tours to sell and promote their books. You obviously were unable to participate in in-person events for both of these books, but you received a lot of attention and support online, especially from TikTok and Liu of traditional, of traditional touring. Could you share with us some of the positive and negative experiences you had after releasing these books? Yeah, um, that's a really great question. Um, so <laughs> I, I have had... I've had two books come out in this kind of pandemic situation and um, my debut, uh, Cinderella is Dead, you know, I, I don't think that we really knew what to expect. Um, it was all new for everyone. Um, and then this, this second time around, we kind of have a better idea of how Zoom works and how, you know, um, these different tools that we've all come to be familiar with, um, how that all works. And it was a much smoother kind of um, launch for this Poison Heart. But, um, but yeah, the people on TikTok, I am an old, so I have TikTok, but I do not like, like I'm mostly there just to scroll, right? Um, mm -hmm. But the amazing young people on TikTok who are so creative and so just passionate and amazing, they took Cinderella is Dead and ran with it. They really, um, I see, display, I, I saw displays in bookstores in Barnes and Noble where it said, you know, um, there's a little sign that says popular on TikTok and my book is there. <laughs> and so it's amazing that the Cinderella is Dead hashtag has several million views on TikTok. And um, this Poison Heart is approaching a million um, for the hashtag and I just, I think it's amazing. I, I really am so grateful to the young folks who are out there and, and using these new platforms to kind of push um, these stories. And um, it's been just really amazing. I think that while it wasn't the ideal situation, um, you know, what I try to keep in mind is that, you know, I'm writing these books and this is kind of, you know, this is a, a fun thing for me to do. This is something I love. Um, but there are people out there who are really struggling and really uh, dealing collectively with a lot of loss um, and a lot of, um, uh, you know, um, really tough things happening in the world, real world things. Um, so I think that the launch of these two books has gone as well as it possibly could, um, given the circumstances. And I just am very grateful to um, to everyone who has kind of said, okay, let's let's do a Zoom and let's make this conference virtual and let's, you know, um, let's find a way to make this work. And the silver lining is that I have gotten a chance to interact with people that maybe I wouldn't have had a chance to interact with had, uh, had conferences not gone virtual. Um, so there's, there's a silver lining. Um, I try to keep that in mind and I, but I am looking forward to 2022 with the releases there because I think that there might be an opportunity to kind of get out and see readers face to face and um, have those kinds of experiences. Cause I haven't, I haven't had that yet. So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that. Absolutely. And the center had a similar experience as well. It's hard to not have those connections in person and to not be able to talk to readers and writers, but we, I think have been so fortunate as well to reach people that we never would have gotten to meet otherwise. So yes. we should jump in a little bit. And before Alicia asks her first question, I will ask, would you mind giving a brief little summary or a little like a little version of what this Poison Heart is about for any of our watchers who have not read it yet? Sure. So um, this Poison Heart is, um, I like to kind of describe it as 
Little Shop of Horrors meets the Secret Garden with a Greek mythology <laughs> twist. It is all things kind of weird and wonderful thrown into this fantasy story. It is a contemporary fantasy about um, a 16-year-old girl named Briseis Green, and she lives in Brooklyn uh, with her two moms, and they own a plant shop, and Briseis uh, was born with a very unique gift. Uh, she can control plants, so think poison ivy. If poison ivy was a 16-year-old Black girl from, the, from Brooklyn, um, <laughs> and so uh, Briseis inherits a piece of uh, land with a house on it from her recently deceased auntie and her and her moms go to upstate New York to visit the property for the summer and while they're there they kind of uncover this very um, tangled family lineage and um, a walled garden filled with the deadliest plants on the planet and um, a, a secret so monumental that even the threat of its revelation would might cause the gods themselves to intervene. That was perfect. Now I know how to pronounce her name too, which is amazing. I've just been calling her Brysis in my head. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been running it over and over trying to figure out how to pronounce that name. Got it. Yeah. Okay, to start off, first question ever. Um, <laughs> uh, what was your first spark of inspiration for this poison heart and what made you want to pursue it? So I, so there's a lot of things that kind of um, inspired this story, but I, I I would probably say that Little Shop of Horrors, because I'm obsessed with musicals and I have been my entire life, um, Little Shop of Horrors came out um, I was pretty little um, when that movie first came out. Um, I saw the movie first before I saw the Broadway show later. Um, and um, so I would say that that's probably the spark. I was really just fascinated by the Audrey II plant in that movie. And the idea of a kind of sentient man-eating plant was fun for me. I was very strange child but um <laughs> so so there's that and then um there was also uh the secret garden which I read in school uh when I was younger um and that story is is hugely uh influential as well and then later more recently um right before I started drafting the book um, I came across an article about a poison garden, a real poison garden that exists. It's called the Alnwick Garden. And um, it's in the UK and it is just this, it is a walled garden. Um, and there's a man who is the caretaker there and he has to wear like a biohazard suit in order to tend to these very poisonous plants. And um, it was just fascinating to me. So I had all of these things kind of in my head. And I really wanted to write a contemporary story, but that had fantasy and kind of gothic elements because um, I love gothic fiction. Um, so all of those things kind of came together and it just kind of clicked at the same, at the right time. And um, I started to draft that, that novel. There you go. Okay. So <laughs> the, the poison garden's perfect. That's, um, yeah, that's a little scary. Yeah, <laughs> no, that is a little yeah. scary. Yeah. Don't want to it is. It. No. Well, okay. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but as I was reading, um, you had mentioned different plants and I would look them up because I wanted to know if they were real or not. And I would I would like look up all the pictures so I could like envision them alongside like the characters and see how creepy they looked and all that kind of stuff. Um and all the descriptions were just so vivid that I couldn't help but like look up the plants and find them. So my question is, how did you go about researching all of the plants in the book? Because it gets pretty intricate at times, like how to care for them and things like that. Yeah, I um, I did a ton of research because I do not have a green thumb. I am not a plant person. <laughs> that was my next question. <laughs> yeah, I'm awful with plants. Um, plants do not live very long in my presence um and so but I'm still just fascinated by them um and so I I did a lot of research and I added maybe I'm looking at my bookshelf right now there's Plantopedia there's okay. so many different there's so many different books that I got um just because I wanted to see the illustrations I wanted to see um the the, the strangest plants 
that I could find. I really just wanted to um, really dig into these very strange plants that have different um, coloring and, and they have different kind of very specific ways that you have to take care of them. And I wanted, um, I wanted Briseis and her, the work that her family did in this place, I wanted that to feel real. And so I felt mm -hmm. like I really had to have a good handle on, um, on the plants, on the gardening, on the tending to the plants. And, um, and so, and funny enough, I didn't really have to make up a lot. Um, some of, some of them are fictional, but mm -hmm. plants can be really scary. Like there are literally plants that, you know, eat, birds and insects and things like that and it's very strange and very almost frightening so I didn't have to make up too much there are some really scary plants in the world um and so but it was it was a blast I feel like I know way too much about um poisonous plants like I was just really hoping as I'm googling like oh how long does it take to like Kill someone with this poison plant like that the FBI is not like watching my, yeah, my Google right, search yeah. <laughs> history like I'm a writer this is for research so um but yeah it was fun and and uh lots of lots of research it definitely comes across all of the descriptions yeah. are so well done it's it's so good it's so good it's encouraging me to go home and take care of my olive plant that's dying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, go water it. Go water it. Yeah. <laughs> um, my next question is your book represents a portion of the LGBTQ plus community that does not often get a lot of representation or love, which is black sapphic women. Um, and queerness is essential to your characters without being a point of overt conflict. Why are queer normative texts so important? Um I love this question. Um, I love, I, so I have, you know, with my first two books, so I have Cinderella is Dead that really took, I really wanted to take a very clear stance on this very kind of, um, this community that was homophobic. It was misogynistic. It was all of these things. And I really wanted to have my main character, Sophia, very clearly push back against all of that. Um, and there are places for those stories, but equally important are stories that are queer normative, that show queer families, um, especially queer Black families, because I don't think that we see that nearly often enough. We don't see any queer rep often enough, but specifically queer Black women and femme-presenting people. Um, I really, really wanted to showcase us um, in this book, and I wanted it to be um, a queer normative environment. I went into writing this book knowing that I was not going to put my characters in a situation where there was any kind of coming out, where there was any kind of um, uh, violence or hatred directed towards them because of their sexuality. I just wanted them to be able to exist and I wanted them to be able to, um, to, to exist in this world where there's kind of this mystery that needs to be solved and there are these scary things happening. I just wanted, um, I just wanted them to be able to, to exist. And I think there's a lot of power in, in showing, showcasing stories like this because it shows people who maybe don't share um, those marginalizations um, that we belong in those spaces too uh, without having to have a laser focus on pain. Um, and there will always be a need to have stories that um, look critically at, at how, uh, you know, those of us in the LGBTQ community are, are, um, are affected by the world around us. Um, but there is also room uh, for these very queer normative stories. And, and the relationship between Mo and mom and Briseis is, is really the heart, you know, pun intended, of, of <laughs> this story. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to talk about mom and Mo, since just go for it. Number nine. Nine. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the shadowing banter between mom and Mo is so natural and quick. Um, did you model their relationship after anyone? And did you use any techniques to create that dialogue? Um, you know, so I have to be, um, so I have, I have kids. Um, I have four kids. And a lot of, you know, anytime that I'm having these kind of conversations, I usually bounce ideas off of my kids because they will tell me that's ugly. Don't put that in there. Or, <laughs> you know, they will let me know right up 
different. But um, I, for mom and Mo, um, I put a lot of myself, my personality into mom. Um, and Mo um, is kind of a, a mix of, of different people that I've known in my life and, and um, their banter uh, to me is just, it's so fun. And um, yeah, it, it was my favorite part of it. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's it, mine too, mine too. It's their, their relationship and their relationship, their relationship with each other and with Perseus is my favorite. It's just by far, I think it's, it's maybe my, the favorite, my favorite thing I've ever written to this point. Um, it really is just um, the highlight for me, but they're, yeah, they're back and forth. That comes from a very kind of personal place. It's, um, you know, it's how I talk to, to my partner and it's how I talk, you know, how I, how I see other people in my community, um, you know, uh, talking and communicating with each other. And it just, it felt very natural. It felt very, um, uh, representative of of what I see in my everyday life. And so it was, it was fun to, to have that, to have it in there and have it feel so natural. And, um, and so I'm really glad I got a chance to put that in there. Yeah, their relationship is just so, it just makes me feel very warm. And that's exactly what I was going to say. It was just like, oh, it was, it was just nice. It's beautifully done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thank you. So we're doing a bit of a jump here. This is a question that I was. Everybody confuse me. This is so bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll go to the, I'm so curious about the Greek mythology. So within the book, you have characters that are named after, oh my gosh, they're both like Mark <laughs> um, You have. Um, you have a family that's sort of named after characters from Greek myths, and then sometimes you draw parallels with that, and it, you know, of course, it becomes a little more and more important as the book progresses. So my question is, why did you decide to research and use Greek myths opposed to um, any other lore? Why was that what you decided to focus in on? Um, I think it comes, I think it's a pretty um, kind of, um, so for me, I'm just a huge fan of Greek mythology. I love mm-hmm. the Percy Jackson stories. I love um, Madeline Miller's work. So Song of Achilles and Circe. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched Hercules way too many times <laughs> as a kid. Um, you know, and I I just, um, I'm a huge fan of Broadway. So Hades Town. Um, I just... I just wanted to do something in that space. And I wanted to, um, I wanted to kind of look at uh, some figures from Greek mythology that aren't as well known. Um, You know, I think most of us kind of know and recognize, um, you know, Zeus and, and Hades, and these are familiar names and and characters. I wanted to kind of dig a little deeper and look into um, look into other characters that maybe hadn't been um, uh, showcased the way those others had. Um, and I wanted to kind of draw a um, a parallel to how complicated families can be. And the Greek gods definitely had complicated family relationships. Too complicated sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. <laughs> Well, there you go. And Millie has a question about Greek mythology. mythology. I know. Yeah. I feel like we should just ask it while we're on the phone. Yeah. Well, it would be the next one anyway, because oh, I stick go. to my little oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> As is mentioned in this Poison Heart, Greek mythology is incredibly complicated due to like its age, all the cultures it's passed through and retold that the stories. Uh, there was obviously a multitude of different tellings of Medea and Absyrtus. Is that how you say it? Absyrtus? So you chose one in which Medea was a victim rather than a villain, which you made very important when you were, when, not Brie, we're not going to try again. (laughs) When Brie was researching Medea. What about this telling of Medea drew you to her? And how did you go about researching Greek myths to like in relation to her? Yeah, so I, um, again, my kind of musical background, um, I was familiar with the Medea opera. Um, that was kind of my first, um, exposure to her story that I can really think of. Um, and then researching for this book, um, I just, I went back and I, I tried to find as many other versions of her story as I could find. And there aren't, um, there aren't a lot, 
Um, but the one that we are most familiar with is the one where she kills her children. And um, I just find it fascinating that of the, you know, four or five versions that there are of that story that only one of them, only in one of them does she kill her children that way. And only one version is that what actually happens. And I, I find it fascinating that that is the, the version that we have kind of clung to um, all this time. And it, um, I, I always say, you know, when I hear stories about villainous women, I'm always asking who is telling the story. And I think that, um, I think that Medea's story is, is a tragedy. And I think that it is, um, you know, we think of it kind of as a woman scorned and, and these terrible things that she did, but I, I, I don't ever hear people asking what happened to her and, and, um, you know, giving her some agency in this story was really important to me. Um, and there, there's just, there are so many stories, um, like Medusa, um, where mm -hmm. these characters that we think we know have had these terrible things happen to them. And we kind of don't talk about that. Um, and so, I, um, I really wanted to highlight that. And I wanted to bring it into this story in a way that gave uh, Medea um, the agency that she really deserves. Um, and uh, kind of just another, another lens to look at her story through, which is something that I try, even though this was kind of, you know, a fantasy kind of mm -hmm. Gothic inspired tale, I still wanted to, to have that there and, and speak to that specifically. Absolutely. Um, bouncing off that, uh, why did you decide to give Brie her particular kind of powers? Um, yeah, so I, I love Poison Ivy, um, just as question. a character. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, um, I just, I really wanted to, uh, Brie's power is, Kind of an allegory for you know being born just as a queer black woman um you are born with these things that are just kind of inherent to who you are and depending on the situation that you're in you may be seen as dangerous you may be seen as something that you're not um and we carry that burden and we often as brie does we try to make ourselves small sometimes in order to not rock the boat too much. Um, and Brie does that with her power. She, um, she tries to keep a lid on it um, and it ends up hurting her to do that. Um, it's not until she fully kind of leans into her power that she really um, is able to let go of that kind of stifling um, kind of pain that she's in when she uses her power um, or when she tries to keep a, keep a lid on her power. And so I think that it is kind of a you know, it, it's, it's taking this thing that is tangible, which is her power and, you know, over plants and nature and, and um, kind of relating it back to um, the struggles that we sometimes face as, as queer Black women. Um, and so, it, you know, I, I really wanted it to be something that, in the end, she fully embraces. Um, and, um, and it, it is a part of who she is, and it is something to be celebrated. Absolutely. And the question I was going to jump to, you kind of already answered, which is just why you connected it to her emotions. And it sounds like it really is an allegory. It's, it's symbolism for the, the power and the burden that comes with being a queer Black woman. So thank you. You already answered yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Would you like to ask another question? Would you like me to jump to my question? All right. I just thought since you were kind of missing out on your number 13. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> um, you mentioned in the book that Rhinebeck, uh, New York, is a predominantly white town. Um, was there a specific reason why you wanted this to be the demographic that you put Brie in? Um, you know, I wanted them to be, um, I wanted them to go to upstate New York. Um, and I said it specifically in Rhinebeck because I have been kind of obsessed with Rhinebeck. Um, I live in Ithaca, New York now, but when I was writing this book, I was in Texas and I was really looking at, I was looking at Rhinebeck, I was looking at Ithaca, I was trying to find a different place to go. Um, and um, I wanted to be in a smaller, you know, place. I wanted to be in New York. 
Um, I wanted to be close enough to the city that I could get there if I wanted to see a musical, but I didn't want to live directly in the city. Um, and so I was already kind of doing this research. Um, but uh, yeah, Rhinebeck is a predominantly white place. So is Ithaca. Um, and I, I think that, um, I think that it was kind of inevitable that Brie would end up in a place, um, if I'm, you know, trying to find a setting in upstate New York that was just a predominantly white area. Um, and I think that her, her existence in that place is just another way of, when she's there, she has to decide if she is going to be herself with all of these things that she has, um, that she was born with, um, or if she's going to make herself small again. And, you know, ultimately she chooses not to do that. She chooses not to stifle herself in this new community that she's in. And I just think that that is a really powerful message that even when you're going, um, you know, no matter where you are, um, there you are, you still have to decide, um, you know, who you're going to be and how you're going to exist. And I just didn't want her to, to have to stifle herself at all. Um, and so she, she ultimately learns um, how not to do that and how it benefits her by just being able to be who she is. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I will, I will let you go if you don't want me to cut in. Go for it. Okay. Um, <laughs> you just feel bad. You, you gotta have your time. I know, I know. I'm gonna steal one of you guys. <laughs> um, so you talked on this a little bit before, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Which characters do you feel reflect yourself and in what ways? Oh, stealer. I know. Stole it from me. <laughs> um, yeah, so mom, um, I definitely relate to quite a bit. Um, I put a lot of my own personality um, into her character, but I also... Um, I also think that, um, surprisingly, maybe um, Carter. Um, Carter really? is, yeah, so Carter, um, Carter has a very difficult relationship with his mom. And he is, um, you know, with everything that he's kind of going through, everything that he's kind of experiencing, he himself um, is, um, is also learning um, how, how not, to make himself small, um, but he's doing it in a way um, that speaks to his relationship with his parents, with his mother, and um, as somebody who you know has those same kind of um, you know issues with parents, um, you know, and, and that's a personal thing. But but um, I wrote his character, um, and even you know. No, no real spoilers, but just kind of the way that things end up for him. Um, I wrote his character um, with a kind of softness. Um, I really wanted, um, I really wanted him to question um, what his mother was saying to him and what she was kind of putting him through. And is that really what he wanted to do versus what she expected of him? Um, and so I. I, um, I can relate to that. And so there's some, there's a personal kind of connection there uh, with Carter. Um, I think also, I think also probably, probably Briseis just, just overall um, is, uh, is someone that I think I would be friends with, is someone that mm -hmm. I think I, I could, you know, talk to, um, you know, I, I see in her uh, these kinds of things that I really admire she really um is uh she really is someone who knows who she is she's really trying to find her way in the world and and she's trying to be a good person and she's trying to um to to really kind of discover who she is and her place in the world and um and I love that about her and I, I she's not perfect um she makes mistakes she um you know she she's messy sometimes but um, you know, I, I think that that's relatable and I, I really, um, I really like that about her character. So I would say, you know, mom, Carter, Brie, those are, those are kind of my top three. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I was going to ask if there was any content that you wrote out of the book or if there was like, like what your writing process was and what did you take in? What did you not? And stuff like that. Yeah, I, um, 
you know, I have a, I have a wonderful editor and I, um, as we were kind of, I, you know, I drafted this story and I, I actually drafted it kind of short. Um, sometimes I tend to like write way too much and then we have to kind of cut <laughs> back. Um, but I, I kind of did a shorter draft for this one and had to kind of add to it as we went along. Um, so I, so there really isn't anything, um, there really isn't anything that got cut that I really wanted. Um, and I think that's, I think that's, um, I think that's a really good kind of um, thing to know is that, you know, if you're being traditionally published and my editor is like a partner in this writing mm -hmm. journey with me, um, she's not sitting back being like, cut this, take that out. No, you know, it's a conversation that she and I are having through revisions, through, you know, edits. Um, and so that is uh, part of the, this kind of publishing uh, journey that I think is 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 really good to know. Um, I am always kind of in charge of the story. You know, if there's something I really, really wanna keep, I can keep it. Um, if there's something I think needs to be cut, I can cut it. And that is, um, that's great. And my editor is there to kind of help me figure out which which parts need to go and which parts need to stay and if anything needs to go or stay or, you know, um, but I, I did underwrite the first draft. So we had to end up adding, you know, 20 or 30,000 words to to really kind of um, make everything kind of come together. And it and the story was much, much better uh, for it. So I'm I'm thankful to her. <laughs> So I, I feel really, really fortunate and really blessed to have gotten to talk to you about Cinderella is Dead as well as this Poison Heart. Um, even if they were just both like just one interview here and there, I feel really lucky that I got to see you then and now. And my question is, how do you feel you've grown as a writer from writing Cinderella is Dead to this Poison Heart? Yeah, um, I, I feel like I've I feel like I've come a long way. It hasn't been an incredibly long amount of time but no, it hasn't. Um, no it's you know Cinderella is dead and this poison heart um came out a year apart um but I wrote this poison heart over the course of I started writing it in 2017 I started drafting it um mm -hmm. and then um yeah so yeah. And then I put it away for a while and then I picked it back up and yeah, so it, it's been a, it's been a long kind of process, you know, to writing it and then to, you know, getting it going through, you know, the publishing machine. But, um, but I feel like my process has evolved. Um, I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly trying to, um, better, you know, my writing and the, the craft piece of it, I think is something that I will always be improving upon mm -hmm. um and i i do that by reading i read so much um especially in the genre that i write in um and in the age category that i write in just to see what other people are doing and how um you know i'm constantly learning from my peers and um i'm i'm constantly taking you know classes and uh rethinking how I approach storytelling in general and so yeah I think I've I think I've I've come quite a long way and um I I think that's reflected in this poison heart I love Cinderella's Dead it's you know it it is the book that kind of kicked all this off for me but I really do think that this poison heart is is um you know, has shown that growth. And I think that this Wicked Fate, which is the sequel, um, shows that even more. And um, yeah, so it's it's a constant um, kind of cycle of learning and relearning. And and I love that about about this, about this work. Absolutely. May I jump in with a question? You may. Thank you. They've given me permission to ask the question. <laughs> I mean, I didn't say so yet. Oh, you didn't. And you're the schedule keeper. Yeah. So. Okay, yes. You yes, okay. thank you. <laughs> Uh, since you've mentioned this wicked fate, I'm really curious to know if you always envisioned this story as spanning multiple books uh, when you when you dove into that, and did that shape your writing? Did, did, was it a different mindset to come up with characters that you wanted to spend that much amount of time with versus a, a single volume like Cinderella is Dead? Yeah, I um, when I was thing. drafting <laughs> when. When I was drafting uh, this Poison Heart, I didn't realize until about halfway through that it was going to need a sequel. Um, I find that a really fun thing that happens to me 
pretty often is the discovery, um, you know, because I, I outline and I do all these things. I try to prepare myself as much as possible. But as I was writing, I realized um, that we were going to have to take this into a sequel. And that was that that's always a really fun discovery for me, because it means that I get to spend more time with these characters who I just put so much into and I just adore them. And so it's really great for me and, and kind of bittersweet um, because it's a duology. So it's just the the two books. Um, and I, you know, I am, I just finished up uh, past pages for This Wicked Fate and there are arcs of that out now. And it feels, it feels bittersweet. I'm so happy that that story is gonna be out in the world, but I also am gonna miss these characters um so much uh but you know I'm I know that I'll I know I'll get to see them again there's some other things kind of brewing so um things happening you know secret things um but um I but but yeah so as I'm writing sometimes I don't always know that that it will span into into a series um but that's happened to me like three times now like with this poison heart and then the vanquishers which is my middle grade um that's coming out next year I didn't really know if that would be more than one book and then I got halfway through and was like oh yeah this is going to be at least two books maybe three so um so yeah it's always kind of fun but once I realized that it was going to go into a second book I had to go back to the beginning and rethink about what I had already written and, and look at it through um through the lens of knowing what was probably going to happen in the second book so yeah it does change the process quite a bit um and it, it it just makes me think about the kind of the the groundwork that I'm laying for the story that I'm going to tell in the next book and that can be a challenge because you don't always know um until you write it what the story is going to be um so it's definitely a challenge writing a series was much much different than than writing Cinderella is dead and um but i've i've really um i've really leaned into that process and i i'm i'm really happy that these stories are going to make their way out into the world and i'll interject just a comment it, it's really neat how you can tell that the first book's a little bit expository like you're giving these little clues to this is what might happen later but we'll see um and that was really really fun as a reader to get to see all of the little like breadcrumbs here and there that we got to kind of follow you along with and there's just so much left to explore. It's a little open-ended. And so it's not yeah. like we know what's going to happen, <laughs> but it's it's so exciting to get to wait for the next book. So I know what better yeah. happened. I'm going to be so sad if it doesn't happen. I know, right? <laughs> I was right last couple chapters of the book. I was oh. like, oh, <laughs> didn't know this is <laughs> So um, maybe got a little too spoilery there, but it's fine. Um, I have a question about uh, mentors and inspiration. So. What who, what books did you read or what authors inspired you when you were younger or maybe now to um, pursue writing, I guess, and write these books? Yeah, I, um, so when I was younger, I read, so I'm, um, I'm 38. And so um, when I was, um, you know, kind of reading in that as a young adult myself, um, uh, as a teenager, there wasn't a huge um section of like YA literature I read a lot of adult fiction um just because that's what I had access to um I read a lot of Toni Morrison I read a lot of Zora Neale Hurston I read um I read every single Babysitter's Club book that ever <laughs> was written I you know I read all the Ramona books when I was younger mm -hmm. um I I love fairy tales and so I read all the fairy tales um and again disney princesses were kind of a huge i mean they're still a big thing but they were just like so huge when i was when i was a kid um and so i read um that's what i read um but i i think that the storytelling um across mediums is really what inspired me to be a storyteller myself. I did not know that I wanted to be a writer. I know I knew that I wanted to be a storyteller. I just wasn't sure how, uh, what medium that was gonna um, kind of take me towards. Um, I thought maybe it would be like musical theater or opera or you know something along along those lines. Um, and then um, I kind of 
fell into writing um, and then life kind of happened and I came back to it when I was older. Um, and now um, I am in the presence of so many amazing uh, young adult writers, Tracy Dion and Beth Bethany C. Morrow. And oh my gosh, I'm looking at my at my shelves. Um, I, I, there are so many people who just inspire me. Um, Adrian Tooley. Um, oh my goodness. There's just, there's so many, I I'm like blanking, but there's, there's so many, I'm constantly inspired by my, by my peers and, um, by people who are just, um, really breaking new ground and doing new things. And there's this book, um, Skin of the Sea um, by Natasha Bowen that just came out and it's Black Mermaids. And it's like, that's something that I hadn't really seen and and that I would have loved to have, you know, I, I'm reading, I, I read it now, but I would have loved to have had that when I was, when I was a, a young reader. So I'm just constantly inspired by the work of my, my peers and, um, and I'm inspired by the work of the people who came before Toni Morrison, Zora Neale Hurston, Octavia Butler. Um, they're all just just huge influences. All of those things kind of in, influence me all the time. And um, I just, I feel really lucky to be able to do this work. And I'll, I'll ask really quick since you mentioned another book before Alicia continues the question, I'm cutting her off. <laughs> she never gets to ask me. I know, I know, I'm so curious though, I'm so curious. I would love for you to give us any book recommendations, whether it's just stuff that you like to read or if it's anything that's empowered you, um, anything that you would enjoy like sharing with other people. Yeah, um, so I have, so I guess um, I have so many, I'm going to try to make it easy. <laughs> um, Legendborn by Tracy Dion um, mm -hmm. is one of my, my most favorite books ever. Um, also, Cemetery Boys by Aidan Thomas is an amazing story. Um, Skin of the Sea by Natasha Bowen. That's a newer one, um, but it's absolutely stunning. It's amazing. Um, and uh, let's see, what else? Um, Ayana Gray, um, Beasts of Prey. Um, it, there's, oh my goodness, there's so many. Um, a Song Below Water by Bethany C. Morrow. And then um in the yeah yeah oh I love it I love it um and so many beginnings uh which is also by Bethany um is an amazing one as well um and I also like I read just so many I read across uh age categories and genres one of my favorite books of all time is The Changeling by Victor Laval it, it's um it's kind of fantasy horror um contemporary all mixed into one um and that is, that's one of my favorite books of all time. Um, the twist is um, jaw dropping. So I recommend that book to everyone. It's a great book. That was perfect. That was great. I'm going to have to go back and watch this recording. I'm all down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go on Amazon. I was like, thinking about writing it down right now. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I guess, I guess I'll let you ask your question. Thank you. Now that I'm You mentioned a little bit earlier briefly, um, your connection to these characters and like writing a sequel with them. So I was just wondering if you had a favorite character um, from either your novels or any of them um, that you've written so far. I, so in Cinderella is Dead, um, Amina uh, is my, is one of my favorite characters. I love Sophia, I love Constance, but like a grumpy, like fairy godmother <laughs> who is just like, just a bad attitude and, like no no time for for any mess i just love her i i really do i'm drawn to these kind of morally gray kind of villainous um characters um who are who maybe you know have a soft side but but don't like to let it show um and mom and mo are just my absolute favorite people in mm -hmm. in uh this poison heart and i have um I'm trying to think of how to, so this Wicked Fate is comes out next year and um, there are the progression, we see her in book one. So we see Nyx in book oh, yeah. one, um, but her character and um, the secrets that she is keeping um, have yeah. come to also just be really, really, uh, I just love her character so much, so.
That's exciting. Ooh, and, um, <laughs> continuing with, you know, your sequel, can you share any details um, on your future book and what aspects of Bree's character would you want to explore with it? Yeah, so, um, you know, I think that Brie um, in, in book one is, um, you know, she's trying to find uh, her footing. She's really trying to, to lean into her power and we see her get there towards the end. Um, I think that book two is much more about her, um, her wrath. It's much more about the anger that she has, you know, not allowed herself to, to feel and to express. Um, and so I, we get to see that, um, much more in, in book two and book two is, book two is a hero's journey. This wicked fate is really about, um, you know, how far are you willing to go for the people that you love? And if, if somebody tells you, you know, you know, you know, I think that most of us are willing to go to the ends of the earth for the people that we love, but, um, Briseis is going to have to go much farther than that in order to, to, um, to kind of try to save her family. Um, we meet a lot more Greek gods and goddesses. Um, some of them are right under our noses and we didn't even know it. Um, and it really is just, um, it really is just about kind of putting the pieces together. Um, and, you know, going on that journey, knowing that you might not come out whole, um, being willing to take that risk. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's an incredibly fun adventure. Um, a little scary. Um, you know, I, I don't think that, I don't think that it's what people are expecting, um, which is kind of scary, um, and, and fun at the same time. So, um, so yeah, so it's, uh, it's on its way. It's, it'll be here in summer of 2022 and I am very much looking forward to it. That's so exciting. <laughs> I cannot wait to read that. I've just, I closed the book and I was like, there's going to be another one, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's going to be one soon, soon, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, um, it's a pretty short question, but do you have any projects in the works other than um, what is it, This Wicked Fate? Yeah, um, so I have my first, my debut middle grade comes out next year. Um, I think it'll be out around um, October timeframe. Um, it's it's uh, tentatively called The Vanquishers. It is, um, it is about a group of middle schoolers living in an alternative um reality san antonio texas um and they live in a world where vampires were known to have existed um but were wiped out by a group of masked uh vampire slayers called the vanquishers and um uh my main character malika uh is um you know she has her group of friends and everybody is just kind of going through middle school and living their life when her new friend Aaron goes missing after a um a function at a roller rink and uh she begins to question um if vampires are really extinct and if maybe they need to call on the vanquishers once again to help save the day so that um that comes out next year and I'm so excited because I love scary middle grade stories like I I love scary stories in general but I get to kind of tell a scary story to a younger audience mm -hmm. and that just that just I love that it's so fun for me that is so exciting I'm like so excited to read that <laughs> yeah I'll be the first one to get that one no that's so exciting um so we have one final question to wrap this up and this is something that I always ask because I'm trying to collect every single piece of advice that I can from every author that I get to meet. Um, so I would just like to ask you, what advice would you share to young writers and young artists as they either try to pursue a career or just to enjoy their craft? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think that the biggest you know, the biggest thing I can, can kind of offer, um, and all writing advice has to be kind of taken with a grain of salt. You know, you have to, you have to do what works for you. But mm -hmm. I, I think that, um, especially if I'm speaking to, um, to young creative people who are, 
uh, who come from marginalized backgrounds. Um, the world needs your, your creations. It needs your stories and your art and your music. Um, these things are fundamental and um, there is a place for you. And, um, you know, it, it, it really is, um, it really is essential that you tell the stories that you want to tell in the way that you want to tell them. You don't have to compromise and you don't have to focus, um, you know, solely on, on pain. There is joy, there is um, adventures to be had. And, and I really just want young creatives to know that there's a place for all, for all of that. And there's a place for you. Um, the uh, National Book Awards were last night and Melinda Lowe uh, won for, um, uh, young people's literature and in her speech she said um you know don't don't let them erase us and that is um you know she's speaking directly to some things that are happening right now with book bans and and things like that but i think that the the message there is that we belong here and our work um our work cannot be erased don't let them erase us we will continue to to create and um and uh, give readers the, the representation that they really, that they need. Um, so write your stories and the world needs them. That was wonderful. That was, that was yeah. so good. So and awesome. um, if you don't mind reiterating just one more time so people know a little bit about where they can get your This Poison Heart book, if you have a website or anything you'd wanna share with anyone and the timelines just one more time for those other books that you're releasing. Yeah, so um, This Wicked Fate, uh, which is the sequel to This Poison Heart, comes out in um, June of 2022. Uh, the Vanquishers, which is a vampire middle grade, comes out in uh, October of 2022. Um, my work is available everywhere books are sold. Um, please use your local indie, if at all possible. Indie bookstores are the lifeblood of the publishing community and they need our support. Um, the book industry is kind of having supply chain issues right now. So if there's a book that you love, um, definitely try to order it like as soon as possible, especially if you're, you know, gifting uh, for holidays or whatever. Um, I'm online at uh, kaylinbayron.com and I'm Kaylin Bayron on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. Please don't judge my TikTok. It's, it's, <laughs> my content is terrible, but other people's content is amazing. So, yeah. Thank you so much. And he has a question really yes. quick. Um, <laughs> oh, I thought he said no more questions. No. I thought he was cutting you up. <laughs> <laughs> Never. The questions have been fantastic. But uh, Kaylin, our program tonight is presented in partnership with DELA, which is an organization that Holland created. And we've actually taken a moment to explain what that is. Uh, so I'd like to give her a chance to, to do the very quick uh, DELA yes. origin story. But then I do have a question for you that relates uh, to what DELA is and sort of their vision, what they hope to be, in the hopes that you can give us some more good advice as, as you've been doing beautifully for an hour now. So Holland, do you okay. want to explain what DELA is? You're so smart. That would have been bad to forget. Um, okay. so. DELO stands for the Diversity Awareness Literacy Organization, and that is something that came from actually our March 4th event here was one of the main catalysts for that. We were talking to so many incredible authors and speakers and artists, um, particularly Anika Noni Rose. She was she's a Disney princess and she's amazing. Yes. And one of the things <laughs> she said during her um, conversation she was having with her fellow um, contributors to her book Meeting at the Table, one of the things that she said is she was challenging white people to do the hard work themselves instead of putting it on the burdens of people of color. That was something that she said. And I took that to heart immediately. So, uh, something in me just like broke. Like I was like, oh my God, I need to do something now. Like I need to start supporting people. I need to do something. I'm not too young. I can do something. So I went home crying. I was like, guys, mom and dad, I need to do something. And they told me, Holland, she wasn't talking to you. Like, please just graduate high school. Calm down. Like, it's yeah. going to be okay. You're going to have opportunities to do this later. And I completely ignored them. And I went to my school administration with this idea for the Diversity Awareness Literacy Organization. Um, and our goal was to cultivate a love for literature, develop early learning literacy better in our community, and also to just celebrate the strength in our diversity through storytelling. Because um, through the center, I've definitely discovered and fortified the belief 
that stories can and will change the world. So that is sort of the mission. And we've had lots of wonderful opportunities to talk to authors like you, which is really, really wonderful for us to sort of start healing the wounds that are within our community through guidance and through wisdom. And then also we get to hang out with little kids sometimes on, <laughs> on this Saturday, hosting a teddy bear picnic. And we're going to read with um, our elementary school aged kids um, in our schools um, locally. So we are really, really excited about a lot of things on the horizon. And these two are both a part of it, which is awesome. We were dragged into it. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes, they were made to do it. Um, but we're really excited. We have, it's it's the largest student founded organization at Beaver High now. And we're really fortunate to have the center supporting us. And we are really, really fortunate to get to talk to you today. So yes, that's what they love. That's is. amazing. Such Thanks. good work, such good work in the community. Yes, absolutely. I love that. So with that context, you know, and I mean, I'm tremendously proud of what Holland and what the Dela students are doing and this big, bold vision that they have. And we've talked a little bit tonight about the importance of being able to see yourself and be seen in the literature that you read, to feel included, to feel valued, to be in places where you might not otherwise uh, feel that you can be, and books like yours are opening those doors in, in remarkable, transformative ways. But we haven't really had a chance to talk much about allyship, about other people uh, reading those books and encountering lives and stepping into skins that they don't occupy. So I'm wondering if you have any advice for Holland and for the Dalo students about how they can how they can be better allies. Absolutely. Yeah, I. Um... I think that um, when it comes to children's literature, um, when it comes to allyship in children's literature, um, I think there is no better kind of resource than the work of Dr. Uh, Rudine Sims Bishop, um, whose piece, um, a very famous piece, uh, you know, Mirrors, Windows, and Sliding Glass Doors, um, it, it speaks to that. It speaks to um, the need um, of people who have been historically excluded from these spaces to see themselves. Um, but it also speaks to the importance of these stories um, for people who don't share those, um, those marginalizations. Um, it's incredibly important uh, for people to see us in these spaces as the main characters, as characters with nuance um, and um, that work is very important. So I think, um, I think allyship is, um, it, in the, in the literary community, um, it's been kind of a slippery slope. Um, we have had challenges, um, with, um, with really carving out a space that, that is, um, that is for us. And, um, and so I think the biggest the biggest way, the, the best way to kind of support um, what we as marginalized uh, creators are doing is um, is to listen uh, and to um, to figure out like you like you've already taken the steps uh, to do to really find out what you yourself can do to alleviate some of the burden uh, from us because we are constantly out here um, fighting this fight and. Um, and right now there's, you know, kind of a dust up because we are, um, Cinderella is Dead was on a list of um, books that are, that someone in Texas is trying to ban from, from libraries and school libraries. And so um, along with many, many other books by, um, by people in the LGBTQ community and by uh, Black authors and other authors of color. Um, and so we, we need our voices amplified. We don't always need someone to speak for us. We do need our voices amplified though. Um, and so any opportunity that there is to kind of highlight the voices of marginalized creators, I think is incredibly um, important and very helpful for us. Um, and so I, I really think that allyship is about, um, is about boosting the voices of uh, marginalized creators. Um, and, um, and yeah, I, you know, I, I, I think that what you're doing is um, commendable and I am so looking forward to uh, the work uh, that you're doing and I am appreciative and I really, I really, um, you give me so much hope because um, young people really, really are, um, you know, picking up this, um, 
this kind of it's kind of like passing the baton you know what i mean it's it i to see young people taking up this work and and really thinking about it in a very kind of critical way um is is incredibly inspiring um so i i hope that that means that we are working towards a um a kind of a brighter future for all of us we hope so too <laughs> we hope so too um thank you so much for everything you just said that was all so helpful and i'm, I'm just so grateful that we got to talk to you today and thank you to everyone who's watching and everyone who will watch we are so glad that everyone came out tonight and yeah thank you we're over time thank so you so much <laughs> thank you so much for having me <laughs> now, I want to thank you really quickly, just very specifically for the queer representation, because it's like, I think Cinderella's Dead is, Dead is the first sapphic book I was able to get my hands on and read, and it meant so much to me. Thank you so much. Oh, oh my goodness. It's, it is the honor of my life to write for, for young readers. Yeah, I um, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being my first author interview. I really appreciate it. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for having me. And this was amazing. This was great. It was wonderful for us too. <laughs> All right. Good night, everybody. Bye. Bye, everybody. <laughs>